Chapter Two of Colonel Greatheart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Williams. Colonel Greatheart by H. C. Bailey. Chapter Two: The Impertinence of Joan Normandy. The bird in hand was therein. It was a thought excited by Colonel Stowe's polyglot train. Alcibiad, a plump Picard, dealt plainly with the hostler. Matthew Marc Luc, thus called because it was ever his task to publish the good news of dinner, flurried the cook. In an upper room, my lady Leap stood by a little window of bull's-eye glass and watched the hill of larches flush and darken beneath the swift cloud shadow and the wind. Jerry Stowe was at her shoulder. From the chimney-corner Royston regarded the pair with gentle melancholy. "'So if we would prosper, you bid us fight for the king, madam?' quoth Colonel Stowe. She turned upon him. "'Nay, sir, if you be men of honour, you can seek no other cause,' she cried with flashing eyes. "'I am a man of the soil,' said Colonel Stowe without emotion. "'A king is no more to me than my fellow. If he needs me, let him pay me.' "'Is your honour for hire?' says the lady, fiercely scornful. Colonel Stowe looked at her keenly. "'Madam,' quoth he, "'what is it you want most in the world?' Royston was surprised by her blush. "'I—I—' she was in difficulty. "'A woman tells that to no man but one, Colonel Stowe,' she said in a hurry. Colonel Stowe bowed. "'To come by what I want, I must needs win fame in a high place.' and so I have set my life on that. And I mine upon dinner, quoth Royston, and fell a-howling for Matthew Mark Luke, while my lady looked on Colonel Stowe more kindly. You are no man to fight for canting rebel knaves, said she. Fie on it! All the world cants, cried Royston. Jerry of fame, you of your womanhood, I of my belly, which is at least no phantom. May we all enjoy them." and then to help him came Matthew Mark Luke, lean, imperious, and melancholy. His genius yearned for a stew, and they had no intellect for it at the bird in hand. The lady ate admirably, but else was not amusing, and Royston and Stowe, maturing between the herrings and the colworts a scheme for the abolition of the monarchy, psalmody, and small beer, excited her to no gratifying enthusiasm. They were passing from the colworts to some matter of pickled cherries, when a chorus of view hallows interfered. Royston turned languidly. Jerry Stowe and my lady, mercurial both, started to the window. An uncomely throng surged down the village street. It was a tangled knot of green horsemen foaming on one lean wretch afoot. He had the shorn head of the Puritan, the bands and black gowns of the minister. He was protesting in vehement screams from the Hebrew prophets but the pack of gallant horsemen drew him on with mocking wanton cruelty. Colonel Stowe was stiffening in each limb. "'Pah, tis no more than a whining Presbyterian,' quoth my Lady Leap, and turned away. "'If all parsons were in heaven, the world would be better,' Royston yawned, but he kept grave eyes upon Colonel Stowe, who stood still and tense by the window. The horsemen drew up by the inn, and tumbling down about their quarry, dragged him into the tap-room. Thence came a weird, lurid din of drinking-song and lewd oath, 
mingled with the threats of scripture. Colonel Stowe, a thought paler, sat down to the end of his dinner. "'Who are the gallants in green?' he asked. "'My Lord Goring's regiment,' says my lady at once, and Colonel Royston looked from under his eyelashes. Colonel Stowe ate pickled cherries with determination, while below the medley of ill sound endured. It was broken by a new note. Colonel Stowe cocked his head to one side. A girl was sobbing. "'Someone cries while I dine,' said he. "'It is an impertinence.' and he pushed back his chair and went out. My Lady Leap looked out of the window. "'Tis only a puling Puritan wench,' she said with contempt. "'Madam,' says Colonel Royston, who was buckling on his sword, "'your womanly sentiments perpetually delight me,' and he followed his friend. He found Colonel Stowe at the foot of the stair, surveying circumstance with an equable brow. Beside the tap-room window a girl wept, and Alcibiad, his plump master of the horse, and the lean Matthew Mark, who had a rival repute as squire of dames, imparted consolation in several languages, but mine host of the burden hand and some cronies stood aloof and jeered. Colonel Stowe came to her. "'Your weeping, madam,' says he, "'makes the ungodly rejoice.' She looked up at him. She was not of the women who are beautiful in tears— she tried to speak to him, and made a miserable, ridiculous gulp. "'Tis very proper in you to say so,' Colonel Stowe admitted, "'but you need not say it again. I am now in charge of the affair. Come with me.' She touched his arm with timid, trembling fingers. The brutal din from the tap-room rose louder. "'My father,' she gasped. "'Yes, but you are in the way,' said Colonel Stowe gently. "'Come.' Faltering, doubting, but his placidity was with power. She let him convey her, sobbing, to the door and up to that room where my lady Leap sat yawning. "'Madam,' quoth Colonel Stowe, "'you can be kinder here than I,' and led the weeping girl to her side. My lady Leap shrank back in disgust that seemed to be blended with some fear. "'What have I to do with the wench?' she cried. "'Your womanhood, madam, was not made only for men,' said Colonel Stowe, and left them together." The girl looked at my Lady Leap with a most miserable wet face, and my Lady Leap flushed, and stood staring at her, mighty awkward. Colonel Stowe came again to the door of the inn. Standing upon the cellar flap outside the tap-room, he reviewed the position. Mine host rolled up to him, frowning. "'Sir,' he growled, "'be you a roundhead?' Colonel Stowe began to smile. "'Your humour has attracted me,' he remarked. "'And yet you do not amuse me. "'Is not that melancholy?' "'I say, sir,' the fellow roared, "'be you a roundhead.' "'If I were,' said Colonel Stowe, sweetly, "'I could not be doing what I am. "'And yet if I were not to be, "'it is strange that I should seek to be doing "'what I shall soon have done.' "'And look you,' quoth Royston, "'tapping mine host's puzzled shoulder, "'though he be not what he might be and what he does,' Yet we know that what he has done may be no proof of what he can be. Therefore we do all hope for salvation. Then they both bowed to mine host, who had taken a step back and stood gaping. Colonel Stowe took Royston's arm and turned him to the tap-room. Go in, George. Make them happy, said he. Their eyes met for a moment. Royston plunged at the door and went in with a flourish and a snatch of song. 
the drinkers of beer did ne'er yet appear in matters of any weight tis he whose design is quickened by wine that raises things to their height he was opportune the sport of the tap-room had grown keen the royalists would have the minister sing for them a lewd song of davenance against his church he steadfastly denied them and already they had knotted cord about his temples colonel royston as he relates preferred to show them how that torture was done in high germany outside alcibiad my friend says colonel stow i am waiting for my horses alcibiad bounded to the stable but was arrested in mid-air by an order in french thereafter he bounded again mine host and his lounging friends guffawed colonel stow took matthew mark by the elbow and walked him through the village till they came to the smithy matthew says he buy me two pounds of tenpenny nails and borrow me a hammer withal the nails of tenpenny matthew mark repeated and his lean jaws halted wide asunder while matthew mark turned into the smithy colonel stow continued to walk at a gentle gait down the road his eyes wandered and appeared to admire the cowslips and the speedwell coming back to the inn with his nails and his hammer matthew mark found alcibiad waiting by the tap-room door a moment after colonel stow came running in much agitation at sight of him alcibiad heaved up the cellar flap and flung it wide mine host was moved to wrath thereby and lumbered at alcibiad growling odd rot it what be doin frenchman alcibiad who was a man of action said nothing but smote with power mine host was engulfed in the same moment he was and was not from the depths he complained colonel stow by that had his head in a little tap-room window and shouted breathless george the roundheads are on us alarm the gentlemen the roundheads are on us a regiment of horse plague found them royston roared flinging down the cord in which he was making artful knots saddle gentlemen saddle the gallant gentleman of goring's horse tumbled through the door in a heap royston agitating from behind and in a heap with frantic oaths vanished into the darkness of the cellar alcibiad slammed down the flap and stood on it matthew mark swung his hammer and drove the long nails home underground the noise was confused you are as neat as providence jerry said royston i should like to see them come out colonel stow admitted but one cannot have everything it is time for us to go slit their horses girths alcibiad and he ran upstairs to collect the woman royston escorted his amazed minister to horse you would best ride with us parson said he they would doubtless like to see you again but one must be selfish at times but the minister was dazed to dumbness with him mounted on one of the led horses with his daughter up behind colonel stow they rode away the loungers of the inn-yard showed some timorous ill-will my lady leap no timorous disgust at the turn of affairs but neither affected the tranquillity of colonel stow they had drawn clear of the village when the minister recovered speech sir says he to royston i deemed you a man of belial and by the grace of god you have wrought me a great deliverance pray who are you i wonder if you have helped us to find out said colonel royston End of chapter 2 Recording by Sarah Williams